it's, I mean, 20 years now. It's 20 years since that glorious day. I have to say, and I'm not entirely sure about you two, but I have to say that it remains one of uh, the days of my life. It remains one of the most glorious events that I have attended, let alone been on the stage uh, of. And um, uh, it's, it's very difficult to imagine that uh, it's been 20 years. I mean, it's just, I don't know, flown by probably. But that day remains, I think, and it should be, etched in in not only our memories, but in modern Brit British history. Because um, until recently, and probably until this day, I'm not entirely sure, it was one of the very biggest... The biggest. Yeah, uh, without doubt. I don't think that's yeah. question. ...demonstrations yeah. that uh, Britain has ever seen. And um, obviously it was tied to a cause, and that cause was to prevent um, the oncoming war uh, on Iraq, which obviously happened, and we still have an Iraq, um, uh, you know, ravaged in flames, and uh, and and unfortunately at a situation which we th back then, twenty years ago, we spoke all of us, as well as many many of our colleagues and and, and friends and the such, um, warned that would that would happen. You know, how did we manage, Kate? How did we manage? You know, CND stopped the war and uh, MAB. How did we manage to bring two million people together? Well, that that's day? that's that's the incredible question, Anas. But you're absolutely right. We did it. And looking back on those days, it, it wasn't just the day itself, but it was the, the years around it. I'm sure you, like us, we did so many hundreds of public meetings up and down the country. And there was just an incredible groundswell of public opinion against the idea of going to war on Iraq. And it wasn't just that we created that. I think there was a, a popular mood. I mean, it, it, was, it was really quite extraordinary. Because as I said at the time, you know, people didn't, most people didn't know where Iraq was. They didn't know any Iraqis. But nevertheless, they were determined to try and prevent that war. And it was, it was quite remarkable. Linked, of course, to the whole question of morality and public life. You know, we were being taken to war on, on a tissue of lies, you know, and, and people really rebelled against that. And, and I think that that played a big role in building that big surge of public opinion against the war. Well, it certainly did. Uh, I mean, the, the issue of feeling that Tony Blair was really listening only to the opinions of the American administration of the time, George Bush, and not to the British people, did really infuriate a lot of people. Of course, the movement against the Iraq war was global, but it was particularly sharp in Britain because British troops, British armed forces were going to be directly involved, whereas German and French, for example, were not. So I think that was that, that sort of drove this. This was a war of choice, a war that wasn't needed, a war where the case had not been made, a war where the security of the British people was not threatened at all uh, by uh, Iraq, despite some of the ludicrous claims that were made. So I think all that drove this, this tremendous feeling. But I still think it could have not come together in the way that it did if there hadn't been, if we hadn't built a unified movement. It would have been quite easy to have ended up with a sort of far-left movement against the war, a sort of pacifist movement against the war, a Muslim-rooted movement against the war, 
all doing their different things and not really cooperating. Uh, and I think bringing it all together, which was exemplified by the three organizations uh, involved, Muslim Association of Britain, CND, and Stop the War, uh, was was in itself an uh, achievement. And because you had all those bits together, you could reach beyond them. I mean, one of the stories that always I remember about that day is someone, I mean, obviously I was at the head of the march, I couldn't see the whole march, but after it had been going for about an hour or so, saying there was this mass of people all the length of Piccadilly, but with almost no banners amongst them. Now, if you're on the organised left or the trade union movement... You're going to have your You banners. have your banners. Yeah. I mean, there were plenty of banners there, but there were also the ordinary people who had no association with a political or a trade union or a religious group or anything, all there. And that is something that has never happened on that scale, certainly, before or since. Um, I mean, we still hold demonstrations uh, against war and for nuclear disarmament and so on, solidarity with Palestine. But those are mainly activists that are now turning out. Um, and and even, even the biggest de demonstrations against austerity uh, organized by the trade unions, uh, you know, th th that they reach perhaps beyond the activists to an extent, but nothing like the extent of the... It's, I, th I think it's true because, uh, I mean, being on stage... Um, that particular day. I, I remember uh, I had um, uh, a six, seven-month-old uh, child at that time. There were so many families on that demonstration, That's Anna. That's so many thing. push and chairs. There were, absolutely. And, um, and that was the mark. I mean, beyond the number, which, was, which in itself is ob obviously quite, quite stra staggering, but the kind of diversity of everything. Mm. The diversity, as you put it, the organizers and their members, for instance, but beyond that, the families, the ages, you know, the, the, the colors, the, you know, the cultures that, that, was, that were brought. The fact that you, you, you rightly point out that um, maybe members of MAB or members of CND or members of Stop the War would carry their own, you know, posters and banners having their, their logos, but how many brought their own? Oh, so many. The teacups, and so creative. the pictures, the rainbows, the flowers, all sorts. And, and, and that to me was, was something that really put, the, you know, put this on a, on, a, on a scale that is totally different to anything else. If I had to think of two words to describe that day and the best things about the day, it was unity and diversity, you know, brought together. And the sheer immensity, because I remember, see, when you're involved in it, you don't really have perhaps as much time to sort of enjoy it or, or reflect on it. Uh, while you're actually on the day, you're worrying about who's going to be speaking next and a hundred other sort of issues that are coming up. What are we going to do with Jesse Jackson and so on and so forth? But it wasn't until the demonstration, the rally had finished. There were still people coming in the, in the park. Uh, but about half an hour, an hour after it, it uh, finished, uh, Lindsay German, the convener of Stop the War, uh, then and now, uh, and I went off to meet um, George Galloway and some friends of his in a restaurant on the Edgware Road. So we walked up there. We stayed there for about an hour. Then we had to go somewhere else to uh, for a, a drink with the stewards to say thank you to them. And this is this is about now, effectively about two hours after the rally had ended, and still um, Edgware Road was packed with coaches going home. And everywhere as we walked, it's quite a long walk across London to. 
Hoban to our next appointment. There were placards stuck in the railings and everywhere. And that's when I just thought, goodness, we really have done something here. This has just been immense beyond anyone's... Uh... If you recall the, the starting point or the gathering point to start the There were march. two. There were two. There were. There were, actually. One was an embankment. That's right, yeah. And was, one was Gooch Street, was it? Or, That's right. Was it uh, yes, Mallet Russell, Street? Yeah, Russell, Mallet Street, Street Russell Square, where the universities yeah. are. And they then joined together At around Piccadilly, Piccadilly Circus. Circus. That was the most that was tremendous That was incredible. Thing. Because it's like two immense waves of, of human beings carrying all sorts of... And the joy from both marches on coming together and then going down Piccadilly. And, and I, I recall being on stage, we, we're, we've now started, we've now begun, and uh, I was one of the chairs, you were one of the chairs, Andrew. Um, and uh, I recall after something like 20 minutes of actually starting the rally and the speeches and my phone going off, and I answer, and someone, a friend of mine, who's traveled down from Newcastle, saying, when are we going to move from embankment? They were still standing all the way back in embankment, thinking that the march hadn't moved on. Some people never actually left the embankment. And they, they had to go there. straight and get their coaches Absolutely. back. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's, it's something that, I mean, like I said, it's, uh, and you put it perfectly, Kate, I mean, it is about unity, unity in terms of cause and objective. But at the same time, holding that, that element of diversity and difference and the such. I thought the size of it was actually a vindication of MAB. Because I remember in one of the discussions yes, we'd right. had, um, that there had been a something called a Million Man March in Washington, I think yes. in the Afro-American community uh, uh, there. And we said, we should have a Million Man March here. Now, I must admit, we were all thinking, well, that's a bit... A bit dark. Uh, yeah, don't get ahead we, of yourselves. We'll, we'll, we'll never get that. That's that's unrealistic. And if you allow for the fact that we had a million women as well, then the million man march and the million woman march made the two million march. But it was it was Mab's um, Mab's. Uh, that was your optimism. vision. Yeah, and, your, and vision. in your book, stop the war. In your book, you mentioned uh, that that particular. It's. Uh, I mean, we can we can spend hours talking about our our collective memories. And I have many, and, and you're absolutely right in saying that, I mean, one of the, 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 the reasons why we managed to get those numbers was that in the, the months preceding, since, since we agreed with our allies across the world that the 15th of, of February 2003 would be a, a day of global protest against the, uh, the, the, uh, the coming war, um, we started this intense marathon i would call it of meetings up and down the country i went to towns that i'd never been to i went to village halls and spoke to you know 20 or 30 people and went to university campuses where i spoke to up to about 600 or 700 people day after day after day after day and the stories that would come you know, with, with all of that, are absolutely incredible. The people that have never... How many people approached us and said, we've never marched in our entire lives. We've never, we've never demonstrated for anything in our time. But for this, we feel so driven that we're coming, we're bringing our neighbours, we're bringing our, you know, children and grandchildren, and we're all going to be in London that day. It's, it was, for hundreds of thousands, it was their first march. Yeah, and lots of parts of the country, you couldn't get a coach for any other purpose yeah. on that day because they were all booked... To come to London. I was part of a negotiation uh, committee um, um, with MAB, with, with uh, I can't remember the train, the, the, the train company, to charter 
uh, a train all the way down from Glasgow yeah. to London for you know for only for for the march, and and that was that was sold out, uh, sold down. That that was absolutely absolutely packed. But, but, um, and with all those, um, the war did go ahead. The war did happen, and um, I have to say that I was very very. Uh, uh, I don't know, depressed, downtrodden, uh, a little bit, uh, I don't know. I, it, it felt like, did, did we achieve anything? Did we achieve anything, Andrew? Well, I think, I think we did. But I mean, like you, I mean, perhaps I never, I was always rather sceptical that we would succeed in stopping uh, the war. I mean, and, and bear in mind, in Britain, we were trying to stop British participation, to stop the war altogether. That would have required with something in America. I mean, because because let's not forget, France and Germany couldn't couldn't no couldn't and, stop the war. And America, the United States, would have gone ahead they, with they, the war they, even they without were Britain. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, Donald Rumsfeld made that plain. Said so if the British want to drop out, we understand. We'll go ahead ahead anyway. Um, so I thought it was always going to go ahead. And I remember when uh, Andrew Bergen, who was then the Stop the War Coalition's um, press officer, rang at I think two o'clock in the morning to say that the war has started. And I had a sort of yeah, that was a sort of like a blow to the a blow to the gut uh, at the time, even though we'd anticipated it. Now, as to whether it made uh, a difference, I think there are a number of ways in which uh, it did. And one obvious one was when the British government uh, under Cameron wanted to bomb Syria in 2013. Uh, I think it was the legacy of the mass movement against the war in Iraq that led the Labour Party under Ed Miliband to oppose that. And as a result, the, um, that bombing didn't happen. And Obama aborted his own because he hadn't got British support uh, in large part. Th that was an example of how the, um, the war, the movement against the war had resonated. Having said that, I think that the, the greater... Um, resonance of the whole the whole episode is the disaster that the war proved to be and the disaster that the war uh, uh, in Afghanistan proved to be and the calamity that was visited on Libya. I think f finally there is a reluctance to engage in those sort of direct wars of uh, intervention and certainly in part because of the of the movement. Um, I mean as well as the fact that they've all had dreadful consequences and nothing positive to be said for any of them. But I do remember some little time later when we held, uh, continued to hold large demonstrations, not on the scale of the 2003 February demonstration, we used to get messages from people in Iraq saying that they drew strength from seeing that people in Britain uh, in, in the sort of belly of the imperialist beast were still demonstrating in such numbers. And that really, uh, I, personally, I don't need any more vindication than that. You're right. I think that, um, I mean, firstly, the possibility of uh, these organizations, the three platforms coming together, I think that in itself um, changed the perception as to how right and left is defined, how ultimately when there is a cause that people even of varying positions on the ideological spectrum can come together and can work together and can share share you know ideas ideals even and objectives i think that 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 was was a mark 
that remains until now. And it's something that at the time, I, I remember there being several um, columns written about this marriage of convenience, about this being some sort of coming together that was going to dissipate and going to disappear um, in the very um, near future. Um, and uh, the, the fact that, you know, people can allay their, their differences and work together is something that you know, drew inspiration for, for many, not only in the UK, but like you said, around the world. I, you know, since then, I was contacted by movements in Latin America, in, even in North America, in Canada, in, across Europe, in Southern Africa and the such, where they want to hear the story of how this became, of how you came together, of how you worked together. I remember uh, being in South Africa around 2005, and uh, I was invited by... Um, an elder figure within the community uh, for for dinner and it was a lavish spread but there was something like 40 or 50 people from amongst his own family his own you know children grandchildren but also from the neighborhood and uh, he welcomed me and he said uh, you know you have to tell us about the two million march and um south africa had just recently emerged from apartheid and had you know the built this new South Africa and uh, you know there was a lot of energy and uh, this elder uh, gentleman he said uh, you know what I don't get how was it possible to work and collaborate and achieve such great heights with the white man and everyone burst out laughing because they said that's you know our dad that's how he talks that's how and I said listen I totally understand because you know the memories are fresh in his mind but th that sort of, um, I think, is one of the, the biggest wins. And also something quite important. 20 years where Iraq has been absolutely decimated, Afghanistan left in shreds, the entire region probably of the Middle East um, made far worse, far more dangerous than it ever was. The thing is that people through the lens of the Two Million March, realize that it, the people and their government are, what, are not one. That Tony Blair did not act on behalf of or the instructions of the British people. That's why one of the sl slogans, not in our name, not in our name, had such resonance. And that's one of the other outcomes, of course, of the demonstration and of the anti-war movement's campaigning. Tony Blair's career was pretty much over. I mean, he held on for a few years, but that was the end of it. He was completely damaged goods because he'd revealed himself in all his dishonesty to the British population. You know, And even after he'd gone, I think when he was producing books and things like that, and it was impossible for him to go and have a normal book launch. And when he went to do events and so on, there'd be people out there protesting. And of course, there were a number of inquiries into what happened in Iraq. You know, So there were those attempts to hold the government accountable, you know, and uh, but he did pay the price. You're absolutely right. I mean, the, mentioning this, I mean, two things come to mind. The first is a friend of mine who used to work at the BBC, um, he told me that uh, Tony Blair, whenever coming on to any of the, the, the shows, um, would uh, put a set, a condition, don't talk about Iraq. Right. You don't mention Iraq. That's my condition. That's my only condition, actually. And the second thing is, and this was brought up by um, 
uh, an Egyptian friend of mine, we, we shared a platform somewhere in Europe, I, I can't remember. And uh, I remember him saying, in any other circumstance, in any other incident, across history even, Tony Blair and George W. Bush are regarded as political leaders who won wars. They actually were victorious in wars. In any other phase of history, they should have their statues in front of, you know, in public squares or the such. But actually, they are going around making a condition upon people, never ask us about Iraq, never mention Iraq, don't ever ever bring Iraq to the and table. I, I just realized, I mean, I hadn't, wasn't aware of it previously. I read uh, a few days ago that the U.S. Army had produced their own official history of the yes. Iraq war, yes. where they described it as a strategic defeat. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, you know, which is quite, quite an admission, yeah. really. Yeah. I mean, Afghanistan, you don't need to wait for any official history, uh, likewise. But I would just like, if I could just go back, I mean, Kate was absolutely right earlier when she talked about the diversity of the movie, the unity and diversity. And I think in, in sort of focusing on that, one has to think about what was, what was new, because elements of that movement were familiar, I think, to us, CND, left-wing organizations, trade unions, and so on. But the, the, the new elements, the most important for me, was the alliance with the Muslim community. Absolutely. There, were others, there were others that were very important, the school students walking out of school. On military families, of The military course. families came a bit later, um, but yes, that, they were unprecedented too. Not huge in number, but vast in resonance and impact. And again, unprecedented, at least unprecedented, since Britain moved to a, a volunteer army. But the Muslim community was absolutely preeminent. I mean, I don't think, I mean, you would know better, Anas, but I don't think there's ever been such an engagement by the mass of Muslims in Britain in any political campaign, or indeed in, in the life of Britain, ever since there has been a large Muslim community in Britain, which is the last 60 years, 70 years or so. Uh, and that was the most um, inspiring thing, because I'd obviously worked with Muslim or Muslim heritage people before in trade unions and anti-racist campaigns particularly. But those only scratched the surface of the community. Uh, and this was something, and I think this terrified the establishment in our country more than any other aspect. As, as an, a militant, organized, active, engaged Muslim community working alongside secular left-wingers, uh, for a government or an establishment that is always engaged in interventions in Muslim countries around the world, that was pretty terrifying. And they, they spared no efforts to try and unpick that alliance and basically to get the Muslim community back into its box. Uh, I mean, you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, I, I, I recall how we would have mosques that would be the the central hubs for, you know, for gathering and signing petitions and uh, and and filling coaches and filling coaches and doing the banners and the posters, you know, from cities up and down the country. And that is unprecedented because one of the main complaints you will find of uh, of, of Muslims in the country is we could never get our mosques to be engaged in anything that is relevant to us in anything political in anything you know the, the it's it's unfortunate that most mosques are of that type where it's just you know passing on time and just doing the the necessity and then just doing nothing whatsoever that time was was absolutely extraordinary i mean i um i used to go to some mosques and find it extremely difficult 
to get them to do something beyond the belief in the cause. So we talk about Iraq, oh yes, that's, that's very sad. So will you come join the, oh, that's, that's a step too far. But at that time, there was a totally different mood. There was a totally different kind of take on things and people were totally committed to actually doing something. And, and what, what provide, empowered that, Anas? I think the cause, definitely, but also because uh, there was something new. And I once again go back to the alliance that was created. And whilst that, by the, you know, don't get me wrong, we, we got a lot of flack because we were sort of standing side to side and shoulder to, you know, shoulder, to shoulder with uh, non-Muslims and, um, and socialists and leftists and the such. But the vast majority saw that as, as an incredible feat and saw that as an op opportunity that shouldn't be missed. Well, it was learning on both sides, I think, because... Yeah, because your, your, your members as well, I mean, I'm sure they were flabbergasted. Well, they were, there were obviously a lot of, a sort of quite estranged from any mixing of religion and politics or engaging with, with people with strong religious beliefs. Uh, and, and so there's an element of that. I mean, it wasn't, I would say, a significant element, but it had to be dealt with. Um, you know, so the, the, the fact that, you know, there's a religious body of opinion here. I mean, there always had been some Christians particularly involved in CND, but not on yeah, a sort of very mass, much so. mass yeah. not probably on a mass level. Uh, so that was on the one side. And I remember years ago doing an interview with uh, our friend Azam Tamimi. Tamimi. Yes. Uh, who was still? He told me he was still puzzling over the fact he was sitting opposite a communist because he'd been brought up that communists were completely the enemy. Um, you know, was atheistic and Marxist and so on. And, and here he was. And I, I imagine for him it was a bit of a struggle, and probably other people in the in the Muslim community too. But if you have a, a cause that you get over, and um, and I, it felt to me like it was a landmark in a way because Muslims in Britain are mainly an immigrant community or where they're now obviously second or third generation and often communities like that feel they have to keep the head down just get on with life and almost not draw any more attention to yourself than than you need to just to get by in a in a society that's not necessarily particularly welcoming um uh, but i think this was like something here we are we're fully part of this society we are standing up too because we share this and that I thought was very inspiring. And what about working with women? Because of yeah. course there were many leaders in women leaders in the anti-war movement, but of course you had great women leaders as well from your community, and, Salma and, Yacoub, and for that, example. That, that opened, I think, uh, that opened the floodgates, literally, for more and more women, the likes of Selma. Uh, remember how many Muslim women we had on stage come and speak and on the various demonstrations and often in their hijab and absolutely proud of who they were and what they rep represented as such and expressing themselves, talking on behalf of their community and also showing pride in the fact that we're standing all together with our friends from across the board. I recall Kate from uh, CND, our late friend, uh, Bruce Kent, a great, great man. Uh, seriously, one of the, you know, a giant of, of the movement. And um, he was my my very first contact with with CND and um, you know he passed away a couple of years ago but uh, but I mean he he remains a huge huge figure in in, in our 
you know, in our progress in all of this that we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, he was, I mean, he was one of the, the best expressions of the kind of committed religious perspective from within Absolutely. A man C &D. of the cloth, I mean. Yes, yes I mean, yeah, yeah, a former yeah, Someone who, who believed in ideals that were absolutely magnificent and, uh, and his take on this diversity was always glowing. I mean, was oh, yes. I mean, he, he came from the, the church in Finsbury Park and he was always telling people, you know, how many different communities and languages, dozens of languages spoken within the church itself. And he really valued and celebrated that and was, was so enthusiastic about the breadth of the movement. And I remember going with him to speak at a, a public meeting in a mosque in East London, you know, which was really, really powerful An event. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I'd imagine. it was amazing. Yeah. yeah, and 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 from from your side, I mean, I, I, I you can't mention the two million. You can't mention that particular campaign without mentioning people like Tony Benn. Tony Benn, uh, certainly. I mean, who had already a, a huge record on the left, and who actually left Parliament in 2001, saying he wanted to spend more time doing politics, doing politics. and then immediately <laughs> got pitched into the anti-war movement and became the president. Uh, he he was an uh, you know iconic uh, figure. Of course, also I mean, I has that 2003. George Galloway had that status too. I mean, what's happened since is another story. Um, but uh, but at that time, um, his resonance uh, uh, with different sections of the movement was immense. And the two of them, Tony Benn and George Galloway and Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn, of course. Sort of and, let's not, and let's not forget Ken Livingstone. And Ken oh, Livingstone. yeah, as mayor, time, of London, mayor of London. Yeah. I mean, he made he opened so many doors for us. Very helpful. And they represented the sort of, the sort of labor left uh, element and it's, it's worth just making a contemporary point that those sort of voices would now be absolutely excluded from the Labour Party absolutely excluded by the and president. Silenced. And some of them are. Yeah. Even, even, uh, even Tony Blair didn't, didn't never even raise the idea of expelling uh, Jeremy Corbyn or um, uh, Tony Benn. He did actually expel George Galloway but he didn't go, didn't go wider than that was was now we have this absolute regime of silence on foreign policy issues and and of course it particularly affects in just this last week in parliament a labor mp was forced to withdraw for describing palestine as an apartheid state um or israel as an apartheid state and quoting amnesty international quoting amnesty international they could have been quoting human rights watch and they could have been quoting various israeli organizations yes. that's slim and, so, and such yes. i think that was another i mean the, the march we're talking about is remembered rightly as a march against the iraq war but it also had uh, a slogan of justice for uh, uh, palestine and i think that helped a lot in engaging muslim community as well because it, it feels the issue of palestine very deeply not exclusively muslims but that, that was the main backbone of opinion on on that um and uh, uh and, and now such opinions are being you know totally entirely marginalized in mainstream mainstream politics absolutely and you know since then uh obviously as you put it i mean the iraq experiment as someone laughably put it uh proved to be an utter failure uh, utter devastation and utter tragedy well, we're talking about several generations of Iraqis paying the price of what was essentially a lie and an illegal invasion and occupation of the country. We had, finally, we had an inquiry. We had an inquiry, you know, trying to find out what happened, why, and probably, probably, in some of our uh, minds, uh, holding some people to account. 
So we had the Chilcot inquiry, which took something like five years over it should have done, and a budget which quadrupled. It's like building HS2, the Chilcot inquiries, <laughs> years late and massive over budget. And then, where are we? We have, we have the Chilcot inquiry now. Well, I think part, part of the problem was, I mean, they found out and published extremely valuable and accurate information. But of course, the intention all along was to find out information, but not to hold anyone accountable. So that there would be no legal proceedings Am I right? resulting from Am it. Am I right in thinking or hearing somewhere, and I can't re recall where, that Tony Blair's condition to the inquiry, that he would engage only if it held no one to account. That's my understanding. Well, yeah, I mean, I, th I think the inquiry... Because it was damning. I mean, if you read the sections that pertain to Tony Blair and the process in which this went through, it's fairly damning. Yeah, it's clear who was guilty, but there were no legal I mean, if, if Tony Blair was to apply for any job right now, with that sort of description of him and his actions, he would never have any hope whatsoever of getting employment. Well, he does look very haunted now, Tony Blair, when he appears in public, which I think is what he deserves. But, but you know, but Kate's, you know, Kate's right. It was a very damning inquiry. But I think it, it dodged two issues. One explicitly, which it said, we're not going to rule on the legality of the war. Uh, everyone knows it was illegal. They somehow bludgeoned the Attorney General of the time into producing a, a, a second opinion that, that it was legal. But no one believes that. But they dodged that. And the question of whether Tony Blair was actually deliberately dishonest. Um, I mean, it, it said that mistakes were made and so on. And it's clear, of course, that the reason for going to war, Iraq, Iraq's possession of weapons of mass destruction, was false. But they didn't actually say that he delib was deliberately dishonest, which he was, absolutely. Maybe he he did believe there were weapons of mass destruction. That's possible. But he decided to go to war anyway. Mm. He'd pledged that to George Bush in March, the preceding year, March um, 2002. Uh, and that, you know, it was it was sort of dodged. But everyone can draw their own conclusions. And and it's worth also recalling that a a journalist talking to me about the Corbyn years. Uh, a little while ago, where I, I'd worked for Jeremy Corbyn, I said, what was your proudest moment of the time? Well, my proudest moment was on the day the Chilcot Report was uh, published, Jeremy Corbyn, on behalf of the Labour Party, apologised, first of all, to the Iraqi people, also to the British people, that the Labour Party had been the instrument of this war, uh, which had had such uh, a dreadful uh, consequences and, and was done on the basis of uh, falsehoods. And and that needs to be recalled uh, as well. If Jeremy Corbyn, as leader of the Labour Party, had done nothing else, uh, that, would be, uh, uh, that would be enough. And also never letting Tony Blair off the hook. I don't know if you remember the time he said Britain must pay the blood price you know, for the relation, the special relationship so-called with the United States. But he didn't pay it. His children weren't sent off to fight and pay the blood price, but it was the service people here and, of course, the people in Iraq who paid that blood price. You know, that level of disastrous hypocrisy and kind of grandiose notions about Britain as well. I mean, it, it's, it's shocking. It remains deeply shocking. And unforgivable. And thinking back um, and, uh, you know, the whole context of the time, at the height of the newly introduced war on terror, uh, we had Afghanistan in 2001, which saw the birth of Stop the War Coalition. And the 
in 2003, the, the invasion and war in Iraq, and both in sort of retribution for 9-11, which had nothing to do with either. I mean, it's, it's, it's staggering. If I sometimes think that, let's say 50 years from now, if people, you know, our grandchildren start reading about the history of the beginning of the 2000s, and they find this particular story, it would be not, you know, almost sci-fi. It would almost be fairy tales. I mean, it would be absolutely un unbelievable what happened. But it was allowed to happen. Well, the Americans were determined to bring about regime change in Iraq, weren't they? And they just thought, right, this is the opportunity. Is the Let's try and hang it on that. You know, however many lies were necessary to do that. And they, they hung it on that and went to war on that basis. But as you say, it was so clear, you know, such a transparent lie, you know, and complete framing up of that that the country, really, you know, no wonder there was enormous international opposition. And just going back to the demonstration and so on, having that, well, on two levels, the international impact. One, all these demonstrations, tens of millions of people on that very same day, but also the level of international speakers that we actually had coming to London, Absolutely. you know, Absolutely. not not only Jesse Jackson, but President Ben, ben Bella, yes. you know, yes. former yes. president, you Bella, know. Yes. And he, a, he said, vive la France on yes. the yes. I mean, what, a, yes. what <laughs> great <laughs> figures, <laughs> you know. Because France wasn't, who had fought against all his life, was not... Uh, I mean, France's position was admirable at the time, and its opposition was very, very clear. And they had this magnificent uh, foreign uh, secretary who challenged our own Jack Straw at the time and challenged uh, Colin Powell at the UN Security Council. Um, we also had um, uh, the former head of the inspect uh, the UN inspection team, Scott Chris, Ritter. Ritter. Scott Ritter. Yeah. Scott Ritter. Yeah. He also was was fantastic when he spoke. Uh, and uh, well, we had tremendous well, speakers. Didn't we on have uh, what's his name? That actor from. Uh, that uh, the the tall guy. Oh, Tim Robbins. Tim Robbins. We had Tim Robbins. We had Miss Dynamite. Oh, wasn't well, we she Tim fantastic? Robbins. We had Tim Robbins on the stage. Well, he didn't speak because that was my fault. Because so I'm not really very good on films <laughs> in Hollywood. But we had this. He probably didn't know who he was. I didn't. Uh, that's a problem. Uh, uh, and we we had a very strict. We had a vast number of people wanted to speak far more than could be accommodated. We had um, a strict time limit. It was like three minutes each, and we had everyone. And there wasn't any negotiation. Vanessa Redgrave, who I do know who she was, she turned up and wanted to speak, but we said no. And then I was told Tim Robbins was there, and he wanted. He's not on the list. He can't can't speak. <laughs> Uh, Hollywood A-list. I know, but he, was, he, he, he then stood next yes, to Jesse Jackson while Jesse Jackson spoke. Yeah. So he was he was in the in the uh, in the frame. But yeah, it was it was a cultural faux pas. It on was my it was fantastic. It was absolutely fantastic. I mean, at the time, if you recall, um, none of the political. I mean, even the Conservatives, for instance, on the opposition who voted for the war. I, I mean, they they had. I don't think they had any representatives. But we had. The Lib leader Dem, of leader. the Lib Dems. We had Charles Kennedy, whom I introduced. And I remember, um, you, you know how it works, you know, because we alternate as, as, as chairs and we are each allocated a particular speaker. So I was allocated Charles Kennedy. So I went to him just before and I said, uh, firstly, thank you very much for coming today. And um, so I'm going to introduce you as Charles Kennedy, leader of the uh, Lib Dem. And he said, uh, no. Uh, I'm Charles Kennedy, and I'm here to speak on, it, it, you know, on behalf of myself. Yeah. 
in my personal capacity, which was, I have to say, I was a little bit uh, disappointed. I wanted to do a trick and to sort of uh, say that. But in any case, I mean, he spoke and he spoke fairly well. And his position thereafter was, uh, was, was, was quite positive in regards with, uh, with what happened. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, the, the stage was, was full of luminaries from across the board. Yeah. And the other thing that really helped mobilize for the day, of course, was the fact that eventually all the mainstream newspapers yeah. started to publish the route of the march and all the details in their pages. And, of course, the Daily Mirror produced their own anti-war placard. Absolutely. I mean, imagine that. The Daily Mirror provided the big screens that were in Hyde Park and the such. It was the it was Piers uh, Morgan. Me, Piers Morgan's always had a Piers lot Morgan. of a lot of credit in the bank. Uh, mm, so, yes, it's mean, another one. You know, <laughs> wouldn't want to endorse everything that he's said and done since. But that that is to his absolutely. Job. Was, I mean, the he daily... was a young editor in a position of influence. Yeah. Very easy to have gone along with the Labour government for the Mirror. That's always always a Labour paper. But he took a he took a stand. And no, uh, no, the Daily Mirror sponsored uh, the big screens. It's as you put it. It's uh, published uh, and uh, a takeout. Uh, you know, but where where. The route was outlined and, uh, and everything. And I recall, I recall the very next day, uh, I was basically too tired. I, I, I lived in Leeds at the time and I was just too tired to travel back up at the end of the day. Um, so I stayed um, in, in, in a nearby B&B. Uh, and um, I recall, I was like really out of it. I was totally really tired. And, and plus, one thing that we, we, we forget how cold it was that day. By the way, I mean, this is to the credit of the two million people who came out. It was freezing. It was absolutely freezing. Yet people, you know, uh, just basically filled central London like they did. But the very next day, it's around 5.36 a.m., someone calls and I, I'm sort of, you know, disturbed from my sleep. And I look at the phone, who is this person? And I answer and he says, and it's what are you doing right now? Please go and have a look at the nearest newsstand newsagent. And I was thinking, what's going on? What's going on? And half asleep, I put on my, my clothes, my coat, and I walked to the corner shop. And in front of me was a site I will never forget. A newsstand, you know, with all the papers and every single paper, every single paper had the front page fully, absolutely the whole front page fully dedicated to the march. It was, it was, it was just, uh, I mean, it, it made me go absolutely it warm was, and fuzzy. It was an achievement. <laughs> uh, it was an achievement. It was an incredible achievement. And no one who went on that march has had any cause for regret. Not since, at all. Uh, you know. No one has said, oh, I wish I wasn't there. In fact, I would go even further. In subsequent, uh, subsequent um, weeks, months in public meetings that we held, I came across countless dozens probably of 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 mps from all parties who would uh, you know i would sit with and have a debate with or an argument with and the such but who would confess either publicly or afterwards that i was actually there i was on the mark <laughs> and it was absolutely at one time it it made the audience burst out in laughter because that same mp had voted clearly a for the war, but said, by the way, I took my mum and we were there and we were yeah. with everyone. Yeah, we changed minds. It, it, was the pub, it was the popular thing to do. 
I know. It was like, well, like you know, you couldn't find any young person in sixties America who wasn't at Woodstock. Uh, they all, everyone <laughs> claimed to be there. Everyone claimed yeah. to be there. But the one per- group of people that were not on the march because they were not allowed to be were BBC journalists. Remember? They were instructed by the corporation, something that had never been done before, nor since, as far as I know, that they were not allowed to attend the march because it would prejudice the corporation's impartiality. Yeah. So the only, the only. Um, uh, BBC journalists they were once actually working, reporting on it. But it shows how rattled the, the government that's, was. And, I didn't it, know that. That's it, shocking. It, it was an extraordinary, yeah, extraordinary thing. No, they, were, they were told they could not go on the march. There'd been a very big march, not nearly as big, but substantial, of the Countryside Alliance um, against... Yes. The Just a week Fox before. Well, no, no, no. no, no. no. It was in September, September, of, the previous, uh, September of the previous year. It was a week before year. the September, yeah, uh, September 2000 demonstration. Um, and, and no such edict had been issued then. And in fact, although the Countryside Alliance had been marching against Labour government policy, yeah. Tony Blair wrote a very nice letter to the uh, organisers of the march, thanking them for the, well, their, their behaviour and, and so on and so forth. Uh, but with this march, it, it was regarded as a threat, and so big a threat, the off-duty BBC journalists yeah. could not attend uh, at risk of losing their job. But do you remember how the establishment tried to prevent us going into Hyde Park because yes. of the grass? Yes. You know, that was the remember only that. venue, yes. the only yes. venue big enough for all those people, and they tried to stop us using yeah. that park. Yeah. I remember that because I, uh, I can't remember if, if either of you were there, but I certainly went with other people from Stop the War to meet the oh, yeah. Metropolitan Police and the Hyde Park Police in a little hut in the middle of Hyde Park. Yes, I was there. Where they uh, <laughs> and they all convene very solemnly, looking at us and saying, "Well, you know, you've been told by Tessa Jowell, the Secretary of State, you can't um, uh, enter the park because you might damage the grass. Um, we would like to invite you to consider how you will disperse the march at the uh, as you, at the entrance to Hyde Park." And I remember saying that I'd like you to consider how you're going to stop more than a million people, which is what we were estimating at the time, from entering Hyde Park under those circumstances. And they called an adjournment and the police went upstairs and they came back down and said, right, fine, okay, you're going to go into the park. We'll just discuss, you know, how you how we organise all of that. Uh, and, it, it, and it shows, and it's, it's worth remembering when we have, at the moment, a government introducing more and more authoritarian legislation against the right to strike, the right to protest and all of this, that if you've got enough numbers, yeah. there's not much they can do. No, and to face them down. Yeah. Mm. And by the way, I mean, since we talked about Daily Mirror, we talked about the newsstands full of the pictures of the march, and we talked about the BBC, I think it's appropriate that we talk a little bit about the media. Because um, I don't know, I mean, is it right to say that uh, the standards have gone down? Is it right to say that the media has... Uh, I mean, in terms of its coverage, definitely it's problematic. I, I, I'd say, I mean, to be kind, to be very, very kind. There seems to be a limit on the voices of opposition that they will include in their discussions. I mean, I was talking with our colleague, Lindsay German yeah. from Stop the War about this yeah. the other day. We used to regularly be invited onto was, quite high level and yes. important programs to comment and put the no alternative perspective on peace. Now, no virtually calls. nothing. No I know. one calls. I know, it's as if they've been instructed. Not saying they have no, been, not Anna, they I'm have. not a conspiracy no, no, theorist, absolutely but not. you know, it's a very, very no, it's, noticeable uh, It's something change. that we've all noticed. I mean, I, I speak to my friends and I ask them, I say, how often are you invited to Sky or the BBC or ITV or such? And, and most likely the answer is never. 
No, I mean we did get invited on a lot around the time yes. of the march, yes. um, but there was still there still was this huge bias towards the government. I wouldn't say standards are lower now than they were then; they were low then. Um, I mean, one one difference now is social media has exploded yeah. since that wasn't really the case yeah. in two thousand and three. Uh, but um, but I remember I, I was been followed around, but by my agreement, obviously, by a BBC crew who wanted to make a piece about the anti-war movement for weeks, not every day, but they've been to several events I've been at, interviewing me on each time for a program about the anti-war movement. And when the program appeared. Um, it was. I was in it, but it was very limited and fleetingly, uh, fleetingly. And and it was. There were a lot of stuff about pro-war voices from Jack Straw's constituency, Labour Party, and so on. And um, this was quite different to the program that had been. Some, so I rang the journalist um, who, who I knew quite well. I can't remember his name now. Very tall bloke. Um, anyway, uh, and I said, "Oh, what's happened?" And he said. The BBC hierarchy said that, you know, the last minute we just had to change it. We couldn't do something that was just about the anti-war movement that had got two million people out on, uh, on the streets. They had to balance it. And this was, this was Alistair Campbell, an unremitting pressure from the Labour Party on, uh, on the media. And the media just um, uh, capitulates, which is why now, I mean, I, I find it hard to rally to the BBC's defence when it's under attack from by um, by the right wing uh, now uh, on, as a sort of extension of the culture wars, um, because um, you know they they do do the bidding of government at the expense of their journalistic mission. It's it's quite sad. It's quite sad. I mean, there was a time I recall. Um, I don't know whether I was I was naive, but there was a time I, I recall when um, the BBC was sort of the 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 emblem, the sort of icon of, of of British, you know, British culture, British society, and the such. Everyone was trying. How do we get the programs that are on the BBC? How do we? Um, but I, I think that the, the big events expose realities. And we found out then, and we found we we find out more now that um, you know the BBC's role, its performance, its so-called impartiality is is not really as as one would desire. No, well, on the left, I mean, we'd known all this from its reporting on industrial disputes for yeah. years, where it was always you know bent in, in favour of the employers or the government, um, but it, it brought it home to a far wider uh, number of people.